0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Alyssa Edwards. Welcome to the podcast, Alyssa.
1: Oh, thanks, Richard. I'm so excited to be here.
0: And just to give you an introduction of Alyssa, um, she is a seminary teacher at Lehigh High School in Utah County in in Utah, and she actually was hired as the youngest female seminary teacher, full-time CS employee, hired at age 23. And I think she just completed her second year of teaching. And um, we'll talk, the primary focus of this podcast is Alyssa giving us insights into high school LDS members and what they're working on and what they're thinking about and her role to help walk with them and solve some of the honest questions they have. And I've been aware of Alyssa through one of our gay Latter-day Saints and and the work that she's doing to also be kind to LGBTQ students and create um, um, a a culture of of being supportive of the church and also helping our LGBTQ members' stories to be heard and some of their challenges um, to open up to someone like Sister Edwards. So that's kind of an overview of the podcast. Um, You served a mission in the Guatemala City East Mission. I sure did. Um, thanks for your service. You grew up in Las Vegas, the oldest of four girls. Um, so thanks for being on the podcast.
1: I really am so excited to be here. I like what you've said with the, with the idea of, of being in a seminary to walk with the students. I think, um, I think sometimes high schoolers and teenagers get a lot of, a lot of just schmuck and crap for being teenagers, but, uh, having this time to really, really, I just feel like I'm in the, in the barracks with them. Like I just, I'm with them and, and I'm seeing what they're seeing and experience what they're experiencing And it. And it's tough. And it, and it takes me back to like, when I was in high school and I had zero idea what I was doing with myself.
0: It's um, honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so it tell us, um, talk about um, growing up. um and then we're, I want to get to Lehigh High School. Talk about your decision to serve a mission. Is that something you planned on doing if I'd known you in high school? Or did that come towards the end of high school?
1: I always had plans on serving a mission. Uh, uh, one of my aunts, who I admired deeply, she uh, served a mission, and I and I remember her going out on her mission. And because she was going on a mission, I wanted to go on a mission. Um So I did have plans and I always thought I was going to go on a mission at 21, but President Monson, fall 2012, was like, JK, LOL, if you're 19 girls, you can go on a mission. And then I tuned out because I don't care about the boys, you know. Um, And so I called my mom and she said no. And I was like, mom, I didn't even ask a question yet. And she was like, (laughs) you're not going. Uh, But my bishop texted me and he was like, hey like, do you want to come meet with me on Tuesday and we'll start your mission papers? And I was like, I guess I got to go. So I went out when I was 19. I went with the age change and I thought I was going to go to Austria because that's where my dad and my grandpa went. So I was like 100 percent sure I was going there. And then I got my mission call and it said Guatemala and plot twist. Guatemala and Austria are two very different places. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I was always planning on it, was not planning on Guatemala, but that's where that's where we ended up.
0: How many missions are there in Guatemala?
1: There are six missions in that tiny country and two
0: temples. And two temples. And tell our listeners, you're an early release missionary. Tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: I am. So nine months into my mission, um, I got really sick. I got this thing called dengue fever. And um, in Guatemala, they actually call it the bone breaking fever because it feels like your bones are crushing inside of your body.
0: Wow. I know. That sounds bad.
1: (laughs) It's awful. (laughs) And your fever is so high, you hallucinate a lot. Um, So it's a really, really interesting time. Um, And I was living out on the coast on the beach in the jungle. And I had one of the most wonderful companions, um, but I was so sick. And um, my mission president came out to this branch. We had a, a branch meeting and him and his wife came out and his wife grabbed my face and she, walked, she would grab all of her missionaries' faces and tell them, I love you. I love you. I love you. And she grabbed my face and she told me, you look awful. And I was like, Hermana Watts, like, we've been without water for a few days. We haven't had power. Like, of course I look awful. And she was like, no, you're sick. You need to go to a doctor. And so I ended up having to take the seven hour bus ride to the Capitol was put in the ER. Wow. Um, yeah. And they did an emergency operation that night. Um, wow. Yeah. So we had to call my mom for permission. And, um, I remember hearing my mom just cry on the phone my mom. doesn't really cry that often. My dad, cries. My mom, not so much. So to hear my mom cry just I broke my whole soul. Um, but she gave me permission. I was operated on. Um, that night was really scary and re- really miserable. Um, and I just remember like thinking like, okay, hey, God, like you want me here? I'm giving you everything. I'm studying and I'm learning and I'm serving. And and this is it. And I just was like, this is the trial of my faith. After this, it's going to be miracle after miracle, which 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 it was like, I got out of the hospital. I stayed in the Capitol for a few days, went back to my... My area on the coast and my companion and I, in Spanish, it's called echando fuego, like making fire. We just lit up this area and I got transferred back to the capital and I got so sick again. And I was afraid to tell anyone because I didn't want to end up in the hospital because PTSD after the first run, we didn't need to do that again. (laughs) Um, But things got really scary and I ended up telling my companion and she told me I was lying and I was like, okay, girl, This is not something to lie about. And I ended up passing out and being put back in the ER again. And this time they did, they called it an exploratory surgery, which I just don't think surgery exploration in Guatemala should ever go together. Just avoid at all costs. So they went back in and, um, I, they weren't sure what was happening. I went jaundice and my GI tract was functioning at 10%. And my mission president got the call from, um, the church office building or whatever that I needed to be on the next airplane home. And so I had one day left in this area with some of the most beautiful people I've ever met and came home and was immediately in doctor's offices trying to to navigate. And it was, and it was hard and it was dark and it was scary. I gave this country blood, sweat, tears, an organ, like everything I could possibly give just to come home five months early. And uh, so that definitely... It was, it was tough. And it, and I, and I'm afraid it wasn't very well talked of. Um, so I felt really alone and like I was, I was a failure and, and that no one else ever had to experience that, but it's not true. There's so many people that were experiencing something so very similar and, and. It just needed to be spoken about because suddenly when I speak about it, I have moms come up to me that are like, I have a daughter who just came home. Like, can you help? And and once we open our mouths, suddenly we can like start to connect and realize we're never the only one in this.
0: How many early release missionary situations have you visited with where someone you've talked to somebody that's a parent of an early release missionary, an early release missionary?
1: Um, honestly, like I couldn't I couldn't give you a number. Um, since Teaching seminary, it seems, it seems like on a monthly basis, I'll have a parent email me, or one of my students come up to me and tell me, like, ask me if I can message their cousin on Facebook, or um, if their sister can come in and visit me. Um, and and I'll go and speak at firesides and things, and and at the firesides, I'll have just a random like first counselor and a bishop come up. So I I couldn't give you a number, but like, there's definitely connections being made.
0: Um, yeah, that's one of my impressions. Is since you're willing to talk about it, do your students at Lehigh High School know you're an early release missionary? Oh, they definitely know. <laughs> why would you? Why wouldn't you just keep that private? I think it's I think it's so
1: important for us to be uh, see through with one another. Um, I as I've talked with my students as to why they they feel comfortable talking about hard things with me. Um, they tell me it's because they know I've done hard things before. Not that no other seminary teacher on this earth has ever done anything hard because they've all done hard things. But I'm afraid we get so nervous about sharing things um, that it's to our our like demise almost. Uh, But as soon as we can all open up and realize like we've done hard things, maybe it's different, but because I've been in a hard place and because I understand whatever pain, when one of my students has been in a hard place, like we connect because we've both been somewhere dark, even though it's been two totally different dark places, but it allows for for connections to happen. And once one student can speak up about something hard, then another student is going to realize I'm not the only one that's like... Questioning if the Book of Mormon really is true, like so and so is, and if they're doing it, it's okay. Like, we can do this together and and navigate it.
0: Do you, if if God were sitting here and said, Alyssa, you know, let's go back to getting your mission call, and I'll give you two plans. I'll give you the eighteen month Guatemala East mission, good health. I'll give you the Guatemala East mission crappy health and coming home early, what would you choose?
1: I would choose the crappy health. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it'd be so wonderful to live in Guatemala for 18 months and and be totally okay. But the things, the experiences that I've had since coming home um, all have happened. They've all stemmed from Guatemala, coming home after 13 months Um, So I came home and, uh, and even I've been home for five years now. And even after five years, I still am dealing with some health repercussions from my mission. Um, I'll randomly break out into an allergic reaction um, from something from my mission. Uh, Like I've been home for five years. You'd think I'd be okay. But one time in particular, I was going to Utah State um, and I was, I had a test I, it was the evening, and I had the te- a test the next day, and so I was studying for this test, and I broke out into into hives, and ultimately went into anaphylactic shock, and so I had a one of my good friends take me to the ER, where I received epinephrine, and and I was fine, received the medicine and the care and the attention I needed, um, and I went home early in the morning. I was home by 6 a.m., and I was like, well, I guess I'm home. I can go to school, because I was too afraid to miss a test because college is really hard and really crappy sometimes. So I went to school to take this test and I totally bombed it. I got a 52% on this exam and I felt so horrible because I studied and I I don't, I mean, nobody likes to fail, but I I put the time in and I loved this professor. So I emailed the professor and I was like, I'm so sorry about this test. Like I, I promise I pay attention and I do my part. Can I come talk to you? So I went to meet up with this professor who was new to Utah state, not a member of the church, phenomenal woman. And I told her what had happened the night before. And she was like, why would you come to school? And I was like, well, I didn't like think I had an option. And she asked me about my health and I told her about my mission. And she was like, and you still believe. (laughs) And I was like, of course, like these, I, 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 I call these moments like our, our, our uh, Liberty jail moments, these moments where we feel like we have nowhere else to go, um, nothing else to do. But that's like, that's like prime time for us to receive personal revelation and personal scripture. Uh, And my mission provided that for me. And because I came home early, I was in a certain institute class that allowed me to learn about seminary teaching, which ultimately, gave me the career path that I'm on. And because I came home early, I I met some of the most remarkable people that I wouldn't have lined paths with if I was out for 18 months. So crappy, but also like life-changing at the same time.
0: I love that answer. I didn't know how you'd answer that, but I love that (laughs) answer. And um, I read this quote a lot of podcasts and we're reading it earlier than we usually do listeners, but you probably have memorized it. It's the wounded healer. And um, a minister service, and that's who you are, Sister Edwards, will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. And so I think of the desert of Liberty Jail (laughs) in Guatemala, (laughs) this country you grew to love and a people you grew to love, but you know the wounding of that. And coming home and feeling pretty wounded yeah. and knowing the desert of being an early release missionary through no fault of your own. It's a pretty brutal desert. And we sometimes say things that adds to the desert. Oh, totally. And makes your road even harder, why we should be kind of. And so I wonder, so I th- and then I think my Im- impression of meeting with you and beforehand is now you're a healer. Um, which is what Christ is. He's the ultimate healer, but you're able to, because you know hard things and have gone through hard things, you're then better able to lift people up and sort of give them hope and heal them.
1: I think that's very beautiful. And I I appreciate that. I just, I think of um, when I came home, I was in a really, a really dark place Uh, prior to my mission. I didn't understand didn't understand depression at all. I've always been a very happy, like exuberant, colorful person. Um, And so when people said they had depression, I just didn't understand. But suddenly I understood darkness and I understood how scary that darkness is. Um, Like to the point of contemplating whether my life was worth it.
0: Wow, that's um, really honest.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, And I know how much it hurt me. And and so when I have students or when I have friends or family members that are in these these places of darkness, like we all have to experience it. We all have to experience pain. We all have to experience heartbreak and tears and all of that. But if there's anything that I can do to to like let them know, like, like, I know you have to experience this by yourself. But like, I will stand right here the whole time. Um, I I'm more than willing to do it. Like, yeah.
0: Tell us your... You kind of hinted to it. Tell us um, when you decided to be a seminary teacher, because that's not there's not a lot of mentors. There's not a lot of people in that road ahead of you that are age 21 thinking of becoming a seminary teacher
1: yeah, so I so growing up in Las Vegas, um I had called seminary teachers. We had early morning seminary. Yes, I'm a survivor. <laughs> um six a m every morning. Um, and I had some pretty remarkable teachers that sacrificed so much to come and teach us every morning at six am. So I didn't understand it was a job. But when I came home, my sister, um it was her first semester at Utah State. We wanted to take an institute class together. And the only institute class that we could fit together was a teaching seminary and institute class. And we had zero idea what it was, but we're like, okay, like, let's go learn how to teach the gospel, I guess. Um, So we went to this class and we were the only girls in this class. It was all boys all of them, and not just boys, but boys that thought they knew everything about Jesus Christ. Like you would think I was teaching with the core of the Twelve. They had an answer to everything. And my sister and I would just like roll our eyes at them and, and whatever. Um, but as I was in this class, I was invited to go. Funny. I know, I know. So sassy. Um, but I was invited to go Substitute teach because a seminary teacher was gonna go pick his daughter up from her mission or something, so I went. Uh, oh, well, prior to going and teaching, one of these boys asked me why I would be chosen over anybody else in that class, and that just like fueled this competitive Good. fire in me. I was like, okay, boy, watch and learn, buddy. Even though I was like, I don't have anything to offer other than like a great personality. That's really that's it. Um, so I went into this class and I loved it. I. Loved it. I was definitely an amateur teacher. Um, I was teaching, uh, what was I teaching? Oh, my first lesson that I taught was, was Daniel and Goliath because there was this massive Goliath that fell on top of me. Um, and we don't really talk about the bible like i know about noah and adam and eve but up to that point like that's all the bible i knew and and so i just felt totally inadequate to be teaching but at the end of it i was told that i was kind of okay at teaching
0: who told you that uh- uh, teacher yeah a yeah a teacher and i just say that again kind of okay
1: kind of okay
0: <laughs> and, ouch
1: <laughs> and i I definitely pride myself in mediocrity at all things um so to hear that I was kind of okay at something I was like well I should probably pursue that I've never been kind of okay at anything I've been like maybe we'll choose her last for the like kickball team if someone breaks an ankle like I just that's not my realm of glory. Um, so I decided to, to keep moving forward with the, with the seminary teaching. And I ended up student teaching for a year and a half, um, at two different high schools and just loved these youth more than, more than anything. I I wasn't, again, I wasn't spectacular at teaching, but, I think one of my talents is connecting with people, so I connected quickly with these youth, and I knew I knew that they loved me, and I know that they knew that I loved them in return.
0: Um, how many? I mean, if I go to a class and it's a class that says I want to become a seminary teacher, I, from what I understand, it's really hard. Yeah, it's this big, huge funnel, and it's not and. And you would think that a job that doesn't pay tons, there would be less demand. But I've always, from what I know, there's a lot of people that want to work as a seminary teacher, and there's very few jobs. So is that true?
1: Yeah. So there's no turnover rate because once you there's get in, no
0: turnover rate.
1: <laughs> yeah. Once you're in, you're in until you retire. I, 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 I guess I don't know. I'm still new. But when I got hired, I heard there's a 10% higher rate. So only 10% of people who try to be a seminary teacher get hired.
0: 10%. Yeah. So um, how do you get – I love that you just, you know, stepped in that space and didn't – were there any female seminary teachers as you stood and taught? Did you have any role model women in your life that sort of took you in the way and said, you know, Sister Edwards, you can do this?
1: Um, uh, there was one sister who taught um, a Special Needs Institute class. Um mm. And she was, she was very kind to me um, and just the sweetest woman, but uh, not really. I, Other than the two sisters I had in Las Vegas who were called to teach, but I didn't have anyone, but I did have a lot of um, institute teachers that really just cheered me on. And they were like, we want you to like teach our kids. And, and so it was very empowering to know that, that there were men that I looked up to very, very deeply that would put their trust in me to cool. to teach their kids. Yeah.
0: And tell us the degree you got because I think you get a college degree also.
1: Yeah. So I got my degree in communicative disorders, which was definitely not my plan. So I went to Utah State with a I was majoring in English and then I didn't really like that. So I changed to religious studies and then I told my parents I changed my degree to religious studies and they were like, what are you going to do with a degree in religious studies? And I was like, I don't know. I just love religion, all religions. Like I love... All aspects of God or deity or whatever um so because my parents doubted me and look at us now <laughs> I I took a career test and my top three careers was number one a pastor number two tv personnel and number three a speech pathologist <laughs> so the first two didn't seem achievable <laughs> so I went with the third and just changed my major that day and it's great yeah it was awesome
0: <laughs> um talk about um the reason we're connected is RJ and i can't say RJ's last name introduce RJ to our listeners
1: oh and give us and my. he's going
0: to do a podcast he's one of our but I'll let you introduce him.
1: RJ is a pretty remarkable man. Thank um,
0: and say his last name first. Rusueno. Rusueno. Yeah. I'll learn that, RJ, if you're listening by the time <laughs> we do your podcast.
1: Yeah. So RJ and I connected um, through EFY. He also went to Utah State and, and majored in the same degree as me, but he was a year or two behind me. Um, and he really is is so bright. He does a lot of research stuff, which is really... uh can be intimidating because he knows so much and I just am like here for a good time. Uh But RJ, he's now getting his master's down in Arizona uh, and he's become a really big advocate in bridging LGBTQ um, with like to the gospel because there's this weird, they're in this weird limbo area. These people who've been born and raised R- in the J- church. Is gay. Yes. RJ R- is gay. Um, but they're just in this limbo area where they, they believe the church, but yeah, I don't necessarily feel welcome here. So what, what am I supposed to do? So RJ goes to church, his YSA ward, he's the ward organist. Um, and he will do panels and he'll put on um, firesides and lessons so that we can navigate what we can do as as allies and, and as advocates for those who are LGBTQ, because I don't think we necessarily know what to do. And so because we don't know what to do, we don't do anything, which is so damaging to people.
0: And that's very helpful. And RJ, if you're listening, you know, a lot of people love you, man, what you're doing. And. I've had a chance to visit with you and now we'll do a podcast, um, but a great man on a difficult road with just incredible talents and Christlike attributes, just like you do, Alyssa. Talk, you know, one of the things as a parent of high school age kids, I've really valued my children's relationship with their seminary teachers. Mm. I had a really good relationship with Bliss Roberts at Island High in 1979. We kind of went to his office and I opened up to Bliss, maybe... And one other really good seminary teacher kind of not, not 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 like they were my bishop, but I told them a lot of stuff. Yeah. And I recognize that kind of an off-the-record ministry often occurs with seminary teachers where students are opening up with really difficult stuff. So one of the things I thought would be helpful for our listeners is to just bring voice to high school age LDS people and what they're talking about. Um so talk about we could continue with LGBTQ talk. Does that do you, does that come up a lot? Just give us an idea of how many kids are talking about that subject.
1: Um, it it does come up a lot. I just in my my so I've taught two and a half years full time, and then prior to that, I taught a year and a half part time. So my three and a half years of of being with the Latter Day Saint youth, um, I I can't. Put a number to how many kids I've been the first person they've come out to. Really, it's almost like a warm up. <laughs> like we'll practice with Sister Edwards and then see where we go from there.
0: What about you makes them so they come out to you? Because it is one of the greatest honors when someone comes out first to someone.
1: I think I'm a place of of safety. I think because I am uh, 26 and single and a female, um, it's almost like I'm a big sister. To these kids. And, and I think because I'm, I'm pretty open with them with things that are going on in my life or have gone on, they realize that like, they can talk to me and we can talk hard things. Um, But in every single class that I teach, I know there's going to be at least one LGBTQ student, at least. Um, And so the questions do come up in regards to the family proclamation, in regards to, I have same-sex attraction, I haven't acted on it, can I serve a mission? Um, Things that, that they feel, but maybe because it hasn't been vocalized in Sunday school or seminary or at home or whatever. Um, they're too nervous to to ask, which is totally normal. Like these high schoolers want to know, but uh, they get so nervous about asking, which we all do. All of us are nervous to ask hard questions. Um, and and becoming an advocate to these all my students, but especially my LGBTQ. It started back when I was in high school. My I had this like the most wonderful best friend in the whole entire world. Um, Just, he, he was a member of the church. Um, I would call him every morning before seminary, or he would call me if I didn't call him to make sure we both got up. So we'd go to seminary together uh, and after we graduated from high school, he texted me early in the morning and asked me if we could talk. And I was like, I, I mean, I just graduated from high school. I was kind of dramatic. I thought he was like going to tell me his mom had cancer or that he was friendship breaking up with me. I don't really know. Um, but he ended up coming out to me and wow. it was, yeah, it was really it, like he just sobbed the whole time and he, and it was so distressing and it, and it just this thought in my mind: like, why? Why would that be distressing? Why would that be so hard? Uh, and so, with my LGBTQ students and all of my students, I want to create a place where it's not distressing. This piece, this this part that that is a piece of these of these humans, it shouldn't be distressing to them. It shouldn't create tears for them to tell their best friend that that they're gay or they're lesbian or they're bi or they're trans or whatever else. Um, and, and so I just want to make sure we cultivate this this place of love within the classroom. So when hard topics such as anything in regards to LGBTQ come up or anything in regards to faith crises come up or hard topics of the gospel, like Joseph Smith marrying a 14-year-old girl, any of these things come up, if we've cultivated a classroom of love, these hard topics can be openly spoken about, even if maybe we don't necessarily have concrete answers.
0: Uh, This is really good. Um, it's really cool. That young man came out to you and there was something about you. He knew he could trust you. Um, and you've created a culture in your classroom. It sounds like students know that they can open up to you. What if, if our listeners are listening, a teacher, a parent, or a local, a local leader wants to create a culture so that people, they have stewardship responsibility will open up any thoughts on that, how you do that?
1: Uh, I, it, it comes from our actions and our words. If we're talking about loving everyone, but yet our actions aren't, aren't matching that talk. No student will ever trust you. None will ever trust you. Uh, but it's so crucial. Like, like what's an example of
0: actions, not matching our words.
1: Um. So I had a student come into my, uh, my office um, and actually I never taught this young man. He just kind of attached himself to me and he was so still is so cute. I love this boy a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, and he, he's gay and he started talking to another boy who identifies as trans, um, and, um, who also is a member of the church. So they were talking and the mom of the trans boy sent my student a text and told my student, um, basically that he was like not worthy and that he was going to go to hell. And at least her son had some hope because he could have the potential of being attracted to women. Um, So this woman who probably sits in relief society every other Sunday, this woman who probably tells her kids to be nice, um, is sending an awful text message that that does not match like the teachings of the savior. And so I have this young man who's so distraught and who's like, how can a member of the church say something like that? And I was like, she can't like, that's awful. So, uh, and that's definitely an extreme example. Like I don't imagine a lot of people do that. And if they do, like, if you're listening, knock it off. um, and none of us are perfect. Like I definitely still get sassy with my sisters or my parents or whatever. But for the most part, I try to make sure everything I do comes from a place of love. And if it's not coming from a place of love, then something's the matter with me. If I can't love somebody, I don't know their whole story. I, there's something that I don't know about them because if we truly understood people, we could totally love them totally and I believe that with everything that's inside of me
0: do you say unaided kind things about LGBTQ people in class or do you just wait until it comes up and I I assume you can't every class you don't talk about LGBTQ but do you just do you talk about it proactively
1: oh totally I think it needs to be because it's 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 our norm um and a lot of people that are really close to my heart um, are gay uh, a lot of that I have, like some men, like three men just off the top of my head that mean the world to me who are all gay. Um, And, and somewhere on the spectrum of, of members of the church, they either have a testimony, but don't actively go or whatever. But these men mean a lot to me. And some of these men have come to my classroom before. So my students have met them. Like, um, yeah, like, yeah, it's awesome. Like just, I think it's important just as much as we, we talk, um, positively about any person of the church like just because you're straight doesn't make you better I don't know maybe that's a personal belief but I think it's true
0: I think I think our I I think our doctrine is all alike under God so you're Mm -hmm. exactly right and so God would love everybody the same and everybody's created I believe the way they're supposed to be Mm -hmm. no one's a mistake no one's broken that doesn't take agency off the table it just shame out of someone's life and you're seeing that if someone at a high school level is coming out to you knowing they're lgbtq and the tremendous shame they feel broken they feel they're a mistake they don't feel god's love they look in the mirror and and so it's you're saving lives by letting lgbtq people open up to you and i love the way that's happening at church in a seminary situation with Mm -hmm. a trusted adult like you i I, th- I heard a story at my mission reunion. I went to my 40th mission reunion, and one of the men, um, we share a common love for LGBTQ. He talked about a son who's straight like you, but very sensitive to this issue. And the mission president, in a training meeting, said, what can we do to improve the mission? And the typical answers would be, be more obedient. Um, he said, stop the gay jokes. Oh, And the mission president then talked about Matt Easton, who came out at BYU. And I don't think the mission president was doing the gay jokes. I think it was just the culture of the mission. Yeah. Um, That sometimes we find community and connection with others by sort of taking on a different group of people. I call that common enemy intimacy. And Brene Brown taught me that. That we sort of create connection around not what we stand for, and what we believe, but sort of around a different group of people. Yeah. And so when you say, I think of how we can do better is just, you know, stop the gay jokes, for example. And so certainly if a a trusted adult is making gay jokes, um, then that sends a message that if I'm whatever challenge I have, I'm not safe to open up to that person. Even if I'm not gay, I just have other things. And that's why you being open about being an early release missionary, and you talk about this phrase See through mm-hmm. um, that part of being really strong, I think, is being vulnerable and being see through. Then you create a culture where your students open up to you and talk to you. Yeah, Any well, more thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's like the the story that you bring up. Um, that's something that I'm very passionate about. Is when we use words like gay and retarded are my two words that if we use those in a derogatory sense, um, I call it out no matter what the setting is, and I like invite them to change their word. Like you can say the same thing, but is like, is your math homework really attracted to math homework of the same gender? Yeah. You should probably choose a different word. Um, and, and like students recognize like, Oh, cause it's, it's not like they're trying to be jerks, but this is like a cultural norm for them. So they use these words. Um, and, it, and, and, uh, again it comes from a place of love like these kids are better than that so let's change our verbiage uh, and it changes the environment
0: do you tell what one of these high school age kids that are coming out to you maybe the only person what what do you tell them
1: um first off I tell them that they are so loved I number one you are loved I think that's so important for every single person on this earth to know and not just know, but to like have it like echo inside of their chest. Like I am loved no matter what, no matter who you're attracted to, no matter what your sin is, you are loved. Um, And then we'll talk about like what like their goals are, like what do you want to do? What is like like, do you want to have a family? Do you want to serve a mission? How do you feel about talking about this with your mom and dad? Um, because I'm not a priesthood leader. I haven't been set apart to do this job. Um, so I always try and push my students in the appropriate direction. If with me it's like a warm up, that's awesome. We can talk these things out. We can figure out where their hearts are at, where their minds are at. So by the time they do. Feel comfortable talking to mom or dad or a sibling or a best friend. Um, we've already kind of navigated the beginnings of their feelings or emotions. Um, but I, again, I just keep coming back to this L word, love. Um, I just think it's important, no matter no matter what your orientation is, you are loved and you are worthy of love, and you will always be worthy of love.
0: That's great, and I love some of those questions you asked at the beginning of that answer, they were open-ended questions that somebody couldn't answer with a yes or no answer, they were, which I think is a great ministering technique that you've picked up mm-hmm. um, to get people talking. How do you feel? Um, um, so that was really, that's great. And I just, how do the other, are are you the only seminary teacher talking about LGBTQ? Because um, I'm just trying to get a feel for are most seminary teachers kind of talking about this subject at the appropriate time?
1: Um, I think I probably like talk about it more, but um, also I think that's it's natural for me because it is such a like a, a relevant part of my life. Like again, people that are very close to me, this is something that they're navigating right now, so it's open dialogue between us. Um, So it's always on the forefront of my mind of how can I make sure that my students feel comfortable that I'm using like the right, the right words, um, so that they do feel comfortable and I'm not downgrading this or, or making it less. Um, but I, I don't think that my coworkers specifically like are avoiding it. Um, but maybe it's not also like as open, but that's, also be because they're 40 and have six kids. and
0: It's interesting for me to hear your generation just talk so naturally about LGBTQ and gender identity and sexual orientation. And to me, that's a maturing of society that we're able to just have better education, better tools and better understanding so we can meet people's needs. So even saying those words out loud for me, Mm-hmm. five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do and not in a church setting. And I think it's just, you know, cause these are heavenly father's children. Yeah. Um, our local seminar here at Cotland high school. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast did have me come and do an early morning devotional. Oh, a morning and sign. They asked me to talk about LGBTQ and, oh, I love and that. So one of the teachers came up to me and says, yeah, I have queer students. And he used, you know, that, that term, which in my day would have been a negative term, but that term, and lots for younger people is just an umbrella term to describe someone that's not s- straight or cisgender. And mm-hmm. I was impressed, um, you'll know who you are if you're listening, that you just had that vocabulary in it. And that student, and I thought, isn't it cool that student, just like your students, he is he or she is out to the seminary teacher, and the seminary teachers recognize they have a harder road, and that I could potentially add to their burden by some of the, not by teaching our doctrine. I don't think our doctrine adds to our no. burden, but, but you know, some of the things that we could say in us versus them, or recognizing that other people that to live the proclamation of the family, a single woman, an LGBTQ person, it's harder. Yeah, it doesn't change your doctrine, but it sort of recognizes how difficult it is to fit in the in a, our heteronormative culture.
1: Yeah, and I think it. And, and I think it goes for both ways. Like I. I, I think just like what you said, society is maturing. Um, I think of when I was in Young Women's, which I mean, was like a little bit ago, but not too terribly long ago, like 10 years ago, I was 16. Um, talking about the law of chastity, we use some pretty awful things like the chewed gum thing. Like that is heinous. But now... It's a norm that we recognize that's not okay to teach it. And so I think it comes step by step. And of course, I wish it could just come faster. But just like the scriptures say, like we, we learn line by line, um, little by little. And it's through these experiences that we can teach better, um, teach more Christ-centered and learner-focused uh, so that people do feel comfortable. And of course, things aren't always going to be articulated the way we want because we're humans and we mess things up all of the time. But I hope that when I do mess things up, people are good to correct me, which my students always do. Always. Sister Edwards, you spelled that wrong. I'm not good at spelling guys. Just like (laughs) leave it alone, you know? Um, so I think we are like, there's clear signs of progression on, on all fronts, I think. Um, and I think the more that we're more willing to, talk about it. Like the changes can continually happen. Um, yeah,
0: that's, that's that. Talk about the J. Kirk Richards painting that's either in your classroom or in your office.
1: Um, so I, I saw this painting on Instagram, um, a few months back, it's called Jesus Said Love Everyone. Uh, and this painting really, really moved me. Um, It's this beautiful depiction by J. Kirk Richards, like you said, um, of the Savior. And in his robe, it's painted... rainbow and there's little figures in the robe that sounds really weird when you describe it but like I promise it's beautiful I'm like
0: looking at it right now
1: it's yeah it's, we may
0: put it in the social media links
1: you should you should um when I saw this painting it really moved me to tears um
0: does it obviously look like a rainbow LGBTQ if a typical traditional Latter-day Saint would they think that's the rainbow flag that's sort of the stripes on Jesus or would they would they not think that
1: I I I've gotten both um like both depictions like some people saying like oh is that for is that for pride or others just like simply saying it's beautiful so I don't know maybe if they think um I don't think so but also I've like we learn ever since we were in primary that the rainbow is god's sign of love like after noah's ark god didn't drop a rainbow down to like i don't know like to say anything else other than like i love you guys like the flood was hard and the flood was awful but i love my children um And so I, that's exactly how I see that rainbow. Like the rainbow is embedded in the savior because he loves us. Um, And he really did say love to everyone. Uh, And and again, like if we don't love someone, it's because we don't know them fully. Um, Which is, it's not something that I perfectly do. Like I'm working on it, but.
0: The rainbow is a sign of God's love following the flood. Yeah, absolutely is. And I think the pride flag or the rainbow colors you know, can mean many things to different Latter-day Saints. I think probably the older you get, the more it's associated with activism. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I think we can separate that and just say, you know, that may be true. And in some cases that still is true, but this is a sign of God's love. Yeah. And so more and more families are putting up pride flags that may not even have LGBTQ youth. So I thinking of what you do to create a culture that that says i can talk to my seminary teacher sister edwards or i can talk to my bishop or my young ones leader or my dad or mom and to me the pride flag's interesting because it does send a message that um just you know that i love everybody yeah and so that's a really interest and some people would say well that's something i'm not comfortable with but others would say that sends a a message that i'm safe to talk to and god loves everybody and Just a coincidence, as I know, I'm aware of the backstory of that painting, that Sister Edwards, I'm going to keep calling you Alyssa, and then sometimes (laughs) Sister Edwards. Both good. And um, um, Allison Grant Dayton posted this on January 29th. I'm reading this from her Facebook feed. Thank you, at Kirk Richards, for this beautiful painting we gave to our darling son, Jake, who is gay, and for letting me pick it up on Christmas Eve. Don't you love the way that Christ is cradling all of us in his arms? Kirk's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so evident in the painting called Jesus Loves Everyone. I am so grateful for the embracing love of our family and friends and for our Latter-day Saint family who have literally showered at Jake, Jake Dayton 26 and our whole family with endless love and support. I'm so proud of my brave son and all that he is and will become, I am grateful from my father in heaven for teaching us what it truly means to have joy in our posterity. And in this post is a picture of the painting and a picture of her gay son Jake. and and Alison Dayton's daughter, Dev, is marrying our son Jake. And so we're very close with this family, and their marriage is in September. And um, Jake Dayton will become one of my closest few close relatives. I'm claiming Jake Dayton, <laughs> um, Allison's son, as um, a relative now. And this young man is um, at BYU and doing the very best he can. And, but I love what Allison did, and she's had the pride flag. She's a Relief Society president in the East High Area, and she has the pride flag up on her family and I, and her home at pride month. And I think she's just trying to communicate not only her love, but sort of be public about it. Yeah. And I think what a message it sends to Jake that my mom's got my back and what a message it sends about sister Edwards that, you know, you've got her You've got their back and you're safe to talk to. Totally. Um, Let's just shift a little bit. Tell us, before we went live, we talked about other things. Pornography. They're opening up to you about pornography. Oh my goodness. So give oh. us some insights on that. Pornography is
1: so so heavy. And it's um wow. <laughs> um, it's so hard and and it it really it changes the way these these sweet kids see themselves. It changes the way they see other people. Um and it's such a hard addiction. Um, I, so I, I started a, a master's program a little over a month ago in, uh, the science of psychology of addictions, um, uh, mainly because of what my students have brought forward. Cause I don't, understand. I don't understand a pornography addiction, but I see the pain that it brings these these sweet youth. And I wanted to know what I could do better to help them. Not trying to like be a therapist or counselor or anything, but what can I provide to comfort them? Um it's it's nuts. We've really given like our our kids such easy access to some heavy things when we when we give them phones. Like they can get to anything at anytime, um, which is pretty horrific. Um, But at the same time, like these kids are a lot smarter and they're a lot more capable than I think any other generation has been. Um, They're so powerful. And I think it's really important when we teach, especially the law of chastity, and especially when we teach the atonement, that these kids are not dirty. They are not their sin. Um, They have sinned, They made a mistake, but never, ever, ever should they be taught that they are mistakes. And and I'm afraid that's the mentality that they have um, in regards to uh, addictions and especially pornography.
0: Do you get men and women or students? Yeah,
1: I get both male and female
0: and are you sometimes the only person they're talking to about this?
1: Um yeah, they're trying to figure out how they're they're really ashamed to go and talk to a bishop, which that can be so intimidating. Like a 15-year-old girl going and talking to like a 45-year-old man about her pornography addiction, that's tough. Um and, and of course, I'm always going to push them towards their bishop. I'm always going to push them towards their their parents if they feel comfortable there. Because again, they have the authority. They have the priesthood. They have the revelation to help here. Um, uh, but I just, I take my part as making sure that these kids know that they're not, they're not damned. They're not going to hell because of it. They're not less because of this addiction. Um, I think of of John chapter eight, the woman caught in adultery. Um, this woman... Which uh, side note, where's the man? Anyways, I get like a little feminist Pretty sometimes. Good point. Where <laughs> is the man? Yeah, he should be in trouble too. But anyway, so this woman is thrown into the square, and all of these people are just being awful to her just awful. Um. And the savior comes and not only does he just come and like, tell everyone to like, shoo, leave her alone, but he first gets on her level. He is on the ground next to her, which that alone is so beautiful. Like the savior never looks down at us and is like, sorry, you suck. Um, but rather let me get with you. Let me be where you're at. Let me feel what you're feeling. Um, and the men, uh, who the accusers or whatever, they all, they all leave. And the savior looks at her and he's like, where, where are those who accuse you? And, and of course they fled. Um, And then he says, go, go, like your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. Um, And the Savior knows she's going to sin again. We all, after we repent, after we partake of this sacrament every Sunday, every single one of us sins again. We all do. But the Savior didn't chastise her. The Savior didn't belittle her. The Savior taught her a sweet, tender lesson and has the hope that she is going to be whole and she is going to be okay, even though she sins again. The Savior was acting out of love and not out of judgment. And I think that is a crucial lesson for all of us. Who are we, like, even if the Savior, the most perfect man, the perfect man, um, if he wouldn't even give a harsh judgment, who are we to give a harsh judgment in regards to a 16-year-old boy who's been viewing pornography for for a while? Um, I honestly think part of this comes from, the law of chastity not being taught clear enough or concise enough. um, I, I think it comes from kids not totally understanding what the law of chastity is because honestly, like the words necking and petting are not used in today's like terminology. Like that you will not hear a fifteen-year-old talking about that. So we're not necessarily sure, but yet it seems like in in Sunday school when we talk about law of chastity, like throw up a PowerPoint, skip through the hard words, like don't have so sex, the, kids.
0: The idea, the law of chastity, the same doctrine exists, but our way of teaching it needs to improved to meet people where they are on the vocabulary they're using and the and the terms there. It's the same thing and. Yeah, sort of, and to have the honest, frank discussions about what the law of chastity is so they really understand
1: totally
0: what the rules are.
1: Yeah, I think of, so just in my young single adult words that I've been in, like we still have law of chastity lessons and, and we'll get up and whoever's teaching it is like, I was really nervous to teach this lesson. Well, if you start by saying you're really nervous to teach this, well, we're going to be really nervous to say anything about it. That's so rather than going in being nervous, which it can be scary to talk about those things, but it's normal so rather than being awkward and scared or nervous like we just have to take the issue so whenever we talk about law of chastity in my classroom like I say it's straightforward like this is it guys like if you ever had any question today is the day to ask but if you're too nervous like we'll talk about it later write it down on a note card Um, but if we're more upfront about it they can in return. So like, I mean, I'm not a parent, so I can't necessarily talk as a parent. Like one time my cat had kittens and I think that was the closest to parenthood I've ever <laughs> experienced. Um, but I just think if parents were more, uh, vulnerable in the way they teach, um, that, that they would see that in return with their, with their children as well.
0: It's really helpful. And, uh pornography as a parent of children yeah i've always wanted to create a culture where our kids would talk to us and they never needed to be perfect and we didn't expect that just like you're communicating and so i think it's really good i love the way you use the woman taking adultery and even recognize she's going to make mistakes again and i think if we create a culture in our families and our wards so that People, Because to me, pornography, the shame of the pornography is almost worse than the pornography.
1: Oh, totally. And
0: shame is sort of this idea, I am bad versus I did something bad. And there's yeah. so much shame around pornography that, that that in itself is the sort of Satan's biggest tool, in my opinion, is then as you feel shame and you don't talk about it and your self-worth goes down because of pornography, then you turn to pornography. Yeah, And that's what starts the cycle. And if someone can bravely reach out to you or to somebody else, and that person can do what you're doing is helping them see themselves as worthy of God's love. Um, yeah, it's something they need to work on. But then you put them in a much better mental state. And I did a podcast. You can scroll all the way down to episode six. If you're interested in my thoughts about, I called this podcast Hope Filled non-shaming thoughts on solving pornography. (laughs) Oh, love it. And then I did episode 13, Masturbation, because I recognized as I was talking to the YSAs, they were all over the place on this. And they'd picked up so many different things from parents, from friends, from prior church statements, that they were all over the place. They just kind of knew this was a sin and they had no idea. And I'm sure they opened up to you about that one. And so I finally just did a pop. Facebook post about it and, and titled it for a mature LDS audience because I was just kind of frustrated with how much misinformation and the misinformation was adding to the adding to the burden of of YSAs that were working through that. Yeah. And so I'm sure they're talking to you about that also. Oh yeah, you better believe it. <laughs> and I think it's great they're talking to you because if they mm-hmm. can't talk to you, they're going to talk to the internet or they're going to talk to less healthy sources to to, as they're looking for information. Right, right. Before we went live, we talked about polygamy. <laughs> and that is a and I just love the way you were so factual with teaching polygamy and and we just share that with our listeners.
1: Yeah, so I'm definitely not like a polygamy expert. Um <laughs> but I I remember Yeah,
0: Joseph Smith's polygamy in particular.
1: Yeah, so I remember being in an institute class they A few years ago, they made some cornerstone classes. Uh, Foundations of the Restoration is one of them. And so there's a lesson specifically on polygamy in that. And my sister and I were taking that class um, later. And it, like, really, my sister had a hard time with that lesson. Um, The idea that one day God was like, hey, let's practice polygamy. (laughs) And Joseph was like, sure. (laughs) I mean, it didn't happen exactly like that, but um, it really, it really, hurt her a lot. And I was like, well, whatever. It's in the history. Like, it's fine. We can move forward. But I don't think my way of coping with it either was was healthy um but i just i spent a lot of time last summer before i taught doctrine and covenants spending time learning about polygamy uh, learning about the norms of it um because polygamy is so foreign and i am very anti-polygamy in my own life unless it's like reverse and i get to choose as many husbands as i want kind of like a doctor a lawyer a plumber i don't know (laughs) um but i honestly like these these youth, they want to know, they want the gospel undiluted. They want it direct. They want the facts. They don't want any fluffy stuffy stuff. Like the Greek root of this is whatever. They want the facts. And I think if we, if we like glaze over it, or again, if we get nervous teaching polygamy, because we don't know why, And that's okay that we don't know why. Um, But if we try to make up some like whatever answers to try and fill a void, these kids read right through our garbage. They read right through it. But rather saying, I don't know why God did this. Like there's some possible answers, but I don't know why. I don't know why Blacks couldn't have the priesthood for a long time, but here's what we do have. And here's some testimonies from sisters who were polygamist, from brothers who were polygamists. Um, here's what the Lord had to say about polygamy. Here's Joseph who struggled with practicing polygamy at first. And finally, God, after three times was like, Joseph, you either practice it or I'm going to find a different prophet. And Joseph, who is just a man, was like, okay, God, like... I'm going to get it together. We see Joseph, who's not this, like God speaks and he's like, you're right. I'm doing it. Like Joseph, who questions just as much as any other 17 year old boy is going to question. It suddenly becomes real and it becomes maybe not necessarily okay because that is so foreign to us. But at least I know now. I know the facts. I know of um, uh, the list of Joseph Smith's wives. I know. Age of
0: those wives.
1: Yeah. 14. Oh yeah. I teach it. Like. I'd rather have them hear it from me so we can talk about it openly in class rather than them going to Wikipedia and then ultimately finding some anti-Mormon propaganda. I'd rather have them take it from the facts. And I I don't think the church has been closed off about it, but since Saints was released— a a more open dialogue can happen because suddenly it's so easy to find church history because before you're going through whatever Deseret books your parents have collected or whatever church websites, which can get exhausting, like trying to search things, we have it all in one place and it's easy to find.
0: I love that. And our son came home one day from seminary and he's our youngest. He just left on a mission to Samoa and he brought up, and I think if it's, Brother Bardsley, I think, is a seminary teacher. He said, Dad, we learned about Joseph Smith's polygamy. And he just taught like you taught the facts of it, the very accurate facts and and some of the, the reasons behind it. And he was completely at peace with that. Yeah. And I know as he goes to Samoa or—and or, I don't know if they'll talk about polygamy in Samoa— but he won't get surprised and he won't get back from his mission later. And then for the first time learn Joe Smith is a polygamist. So I love what's happening in the high school level. That same son in his junior year, brother Blackburn, I believe, was the teacher, walked him through the Mormon and gay website. It was the first exposure to um, LGBTQ. And I just was so grateful. And obviously taking – Anybody that takes anybody to the Mormon and Gay website to learn about LGBTQ, you're on safe ground because that's the church's official um, content there. And I was just grateful that he learned that at that age, as you know better than I do, juniors, seniors, and sophomores are craving for information. And I love you, remind me of Spencer Fluman at BYU, a prof, uh, professor there. He says, and I read this on his tweet, he says, you just got to. You, if they sense you're skirting an issue or you're kind of fluffing it or you're giving kind of a safe narrative, they see right through that. <laughs> and and you just have to be direct and strong and own it and teach it, and they, they're fine.
1: Yeah, it's totally true.
0: Um, talk about self-image as another challenge and then faith crisis that our youth that you're talking to are going through.
1: Oh, self-image. I really... Um... Again, I think because of being a female and being young, um, younger, um, this is something that students feel safe with me talking about because self-image is so hard in high school, like being okay with who you are and what you're becoming. Um, and I really just thought it was a girl problem, but I have boys come into my office too, who, who don't feel confident, who have picked up eating disorders because they want to look like, um, so-and-so whatever young man. Um, so just understanding who they are. And I really think the gospel solves all problems. Like if, My students really understood that they were made out of the image of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, who are perfect beings. Um, Of course, we're still going to have image issues because we live in this fallen world, but suddenly it's not going to be that big of a deal. Some days will be harder than others, and that's okay. But I was created out of the image of Heavenly Mother, and she's incredible. She is spectacular. Like, Heavenly Father probably has to try and keep up with her. Like I just, I just,
0: I have a big smile on my face.
1: (laughs) I just love her. Um, So again, if we understand the gospel, if we understand our divine potential, if we understood um, something that I teach students, and this is usually just like one-on-one, is that our heavenly father and heavenly mother, they carefully crafted us. Like when they were creating us, they just weren't picking up spare parts and cramming them together like mixed Play-Doh and like, sorry, like this sucks. And tossing you down to earth. But no, like they carefully put us together. They carefully gave us attributes that they have. They gave us personalities. They gave us attributes that only we have. Like we were carefully put together by a loving heavenly mother and a loving heavenly father. And you know, if it wasn't right, heavenly mother wasn't going to let heavenly father send us down. There was no way she was going to let us get sent down until she felt we were good enough to go. and I know that's some of like my own personal philosophy, definitely mixed in. But there's truth that we were created out of the image of our heavenly father and heavenly mother, um, and as as we come to understand that more, uh, our self image is going to increase. But I also think self image—not I think I know self image. Um, when there's problems with self image, there's. Uh, not always, but there is a probability that there's an, a, there's a pornography addiction uh, because por- pornography is is sharing things that are not um, of our heavenly Father and heavenly Mother. They're showing things that are that are not real, um, and so that skewed self image can come from that, along with just living in a fallen
0: world. I like that. I love the way you went to the doctrine to build self image. And the power of doctrine of loving heavenly parents who love us and we're created in their image. And so, however, we're all created, society have normalized different types of self-images. But I don't think God, I don't think Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother have. No. To your point. And that's a very thoughtful. Talk about faith crisis. I don't know how often a student will reach out to you and say, Sister Edwards, I'm not sure I believe.
1: Yeah. So this happens more regularly than we, than we anticipate. I I think a lot of students just want to like, like be obedient to mom and dad and make sure things are, are, are good with them. Um, but then come beginning of senior year, suddenly mom and dad are expecting me to go on a mission. And I don't even know if the book of Mormon is true or mom and dad are, are wanting me to like go to BYU Provo, but I've got some law of chastity issues that, I don't think are wrong. Um, and, and so I just, I I think that if we create a place where questions can be had, doubts can be, we can talk openly about doubts. Um, then these like, we're still going to have faith crises. Like I'm a seminary teacher and I still have faith crises. Like God, where are you? Like when things so, are happening, you know, like it's, it's normal and it's okay. Um, and, and that's why President elder Uchtdorf, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Like, Allow these questions to come um, and like approach them. Like if you don't know the Book of Mormon is true, acknowledge that you don't know the Book of Mormon is true. Don't try and just like work your way around it. Um, So when we do come forward with doubts, like I don't know the church is true. um, I always try and identify what part of the church or what part of the gospel uh, because I know there's certain things in the gospel that sometimes I'm rocky on that don't necessarily make sense, but there's always one thing I come back to, um, and that's my testimony of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is true, and because the Book of Mormon is true, literally everything else is true. And so we identify something that they are so concrete firm about. So maybe it is that my family really is eternal. I know without a shadow of a doubt that my family is eternal. Okay, well, what allows us to know that? So then we'll work our way through. Or I know that, that I'm a, a child of a loving Heavenly Father. How do we know that? So all of these youth, no matter what their belief is, no matter what their doubt is, they're all going to have a, a concrete belief. And it, and it can be a plethora of different things. And if we can help them identify that you know this to be true, then that, that whatever this crisis is, it's going to calm down, and the pieces are going to fall into place. Um, but sometimes it just gets a little mumble jumbled, and we need to find the peace that will always be there for them.
0: I love that answer. Um, two things in particular. One is just being open at times that it's hard. We have faith. Mm-hmm. You kind of normalize faith crisis. You almost said it plural. I have faith crises all the time, and <laughs> I think that's a scary word for a lot of people to say. But I think what you're saying is, I just at times have doubts and questions, and um, but I'm here. I believe. I know what I know, and I think then you become an example to others and say, "Oh, Sister Edwards doesn't have an answer to everything, but she's willing to kind of talk about the things that are hard." And be open about it so I can say, well, I can do what Sister Edwards does. And she also teaches me the doctrine that she deeply believes in. Mm -hmm. Um, The Book of Mormon, eternal plan of salvation, family, you know, some of the things you mentioned. So I think that's a really thoughtful thing to share. Um, Because I just think it's a... I kind of talk about fallen dominoes sometimes in my own faith, that I've had a few fallen dominoes. And those... And I don't try to evangelize people to my fallen dominoes, but my fallen dominoes, dominoes are a visual that if one starts to fall, they all fall. <laughs> and for me, after a couple of dominoes fell, it hit a domino like the Book of Mormon that has really, really deep roots. Mm-hmm. And and some of the other things you mentioned, like Heavenly Parents that Love Us, the Atonement of Christ. And so I have a, and I, my, so my feelings about the church, I'm deeply committed, fully believing, active member. Um, and I'm glad I have a couple fallen dominoes because it's given me I'm a little bit more wounded and I know that desert a little bit more. So I think I can authentically help other people because I'm open with my own faith journey. Yeah. And I used your term. Um I'm gonna find it. I wrote it down. Don't tell me. See <laughs> through. Yeah, yeah. So um I just think our youth need perhaps a different paradigm to believe and there's just going to be fallen dominoes or things they are unsettled about. And I think more of my generation is pretty settled about everything. And I think more of your generation, the millennial generation, Gen X, I guess is who you're teaching. Yeah. Um, I can't quite, you're a millennial? I'm sisters? a millennial. Oh you're yeah. You're a young millennial. Yeah. Um, I, are your high school kids Gen X or what's the next group? I think,
1: I think they're Gen X. I don't even think they know. I don't think anybody knows what they are. (laughs) Well, it's
0: probably the same group because you're so close in age. That's one of the things that I'm so glad you're a seminary teacher because you're so close in age. Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge asset. And I think um, it connects you with, and I think even if as you age up and your students continue, obviously, to be high school age kids, you will stay connected to them. You're not going to age out of relevance with them because you know their world and you know their language and you'll stay connected with them. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the youth are more aware of our history and current issues and just it's not. And so I do think they need examples like you. Um, I do love the Book of Mormon. Today we recorded a podcast that will probably be released with this pot- before this podcast with other Callister um, and his book about the Book of Mormon. And it was just wonderful for me to sit there and listen to um, – he talks about you know the, all the reasons that critics would say the Book of Mormon wasn't true in this book. And he says the one that they use now is that Joseph Smith actually, instead of was a creative genius, and he wrote <laughs> it. And then he goes through how unbelievable that is um, to have done what he'd done. And I agree with that. Um, I believe the Book of Mormon was written, is from God, and was translated by Joseph Smith, and is a great evidence of the truthfulness of the church. And and Elder Callister talked about the doctrine that is only in the Book of Mormon. But not only did Joseph Smith have to write the book, and he had to write new doctrine, like um, a much different approach about Adam and Eve than was current in the religious narrative of his time and infant baptism and on and on. So I think the Book of Mormon is this great, you know, if even people I talk to that kind of want to leave the church, but most I talk to actually want to find a way to stay. The Book of Mormon is often, you know, the thing that keeps it's them staying. The core. It's the, it, There. It's no wonder why they call it the keystone. Um, we're kind of at quitting time. Um, These podcasts, I wish never ended. Just any other th- subjects we didn't bring up, um, or th- concluding thoughts you'd like to share with listeners.
1: I I feel like we touched on <laughs> we touched on a lot. But if you do have any other questions, let me know. Um, but I just think, like honestly, the the core of the gospel is love. Like God is love. The Savior is love. The atonement was the greatest act of love. So if we could more fully um, communicate and interact with others and with ourselves and with our Savior and with our heavenly parents, if we could more uh, just maximize the love that we that we demonstrate, it's going to change everything. Um, again, the gospel is a gospel of love. And no matter what, no matter what the sin is, no matter what the identification is, no matter what the trial is, um, when love becomes the driving force behind what we do, people feel it, and people know it, and people recognize it. Um, and I, and I honestly think that's that's why our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother have, have has given us that. So.
0: I love that, and it is our doctrine. And I think your younger group is teaching us how to how to do that. I, after my YSA say, Simon, I, I just I I am not negative at all on your age group. I love your age group, and I get very tender-hearted because I think you're going to help us be the body of Christ that we need to become and solve some of the cultural challenges that we have. I believe in the restored church, but the institutional ch- side of the church that to me, that's where the culture lies, has work to do. So I say that I don't I say that the people aren't perfect, but I say the institutional side of the church isn't perfect, but our restored gospel is. Mm-hmm. And we're working to fully match that. And so your generation just gives me great hope. And um, I had an experience this week. We recorded episode 159, Luke Warnock, who's um, the student body class president at Corner Canyon, star member of the basketball team, and gay. He's not LDS and he shared his story and coming out at Cop at Corner Canyon. But we visited this week. We might do a podcast with his friend Andrew. And Andrew's the straight fellow basketball player that's preparing for a mission. And these two guys are great friends. Nothing changed. Love that. And I just think that those two men are teaching us how to love. And I didn't have the skills Andrew had 40 years ago. I withdrew from the gay men at my high school. And for Andrew to not withdraw, but, you know, nothing changed. And there's differences. They have difference, obviously, in religious beliefs and sexual orientation. They love basketball together. But to me, the doctrine of love is keeping these good men together. And Andrew's confident enough about his soul, his sexual identity as a straight man. He doesn't need to sort of take on gay people, somehow lift him up. He's just who he is, and he doesn't need to take on another group of people to be who he is. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's coming back to what you're teaching is love. And that is our doctrine. And I think you're helping us and your younger group helping us how to do that. And I think the podcast, as we listen to guests like yours and and other people go, I can do what Sister Edwards is doing. Um, Everything you're doing is rooted in the doctrine of our church. And I would guess if we could have Lehigh students on the podcast to talk about, you know, how much you mean to them and your ability to give them hope. And hope is part of our doctrine and to point them to Christ that gives them hope and to help them not feel shame, but feel hope of the atonement and hope of the future. I'm really glad you're there and I'm grateful for all this CES instructors. I think you're awesome. And I, so if there's any listening and a few have reached out to me wanting to talk about LGBTQ, you are all awesome. And you don't get paid enough and you don't get <laughs> thanks enough, but your role to work with the youth of the church in these trusted classroom situations and then the conversations you're having, there's a special place in heaven for all of you. And I know you're not all perfect, and sometimes we have one that goes sideways, <laughs> and that's that's okay, but... Um, Thank you for what you're doing and what you'll continue to do in the CES department and, and helping so many people. So Alyssa Edwards and all of our CES instructors, but specifically for Alyssa Edwards, thank you for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.